Good morning, church. Oh, come on. I know it's 9.30. But good morning, church. I'm so glad to be here uh, this morning participating in the gathering of God's people here at Hillcrest. It's good to see everyone here at Nine Mile in the flesh. So good morning to you guys as well. And I want to give a shout out to my Spanish trail crew over there. Good morning, you guys. So glad uh, to be preaching the word and that you guys are getting to participate in it over there. You guys do me a quick favor though this morning, keep an eye out on Heath Wilson. That guy tends to get himself in trouble when I'm not around at Spanish Trail. And so you guys help me out by looking out for Heath. Um, also just wanna welcome all of our online crowd for coming to hang out with us. So we're grateful for technology and the internet that gives us the opportunity for them to pipe in with us and participate in what God's doing here at our church. Wherever you are, in one of our rooms or around the world, I am glad you've chosen to be here this morning. I'm, I'm glad you've chosen to spend these few minutes of your life together with God's people for this purpose. And my prayer is that it has been and will continue to be time well spent for our good and God's glory. Speaking of our good, how good has this series in the Minor Prophets been this summer? Man, I have thoroughly enjoyed it and I have thoroughly enjoyed the godly gifted men who have preached this series to us this summer. We are richly blessed as a church to have such gifted preachers. Um, and I am, yes, that's worth applauding. They've done a killer job this summer. Um, I don't think it's an accident that Pastor Jim gave us the minor prophets to preach while he was gone this summer because they are quite challenging sometimes, but they've been a blast. And I'm grateful for the men that I get to work alongside. I get to call them friends and co-laborers in the Lord. And while I'm talking about those friends and pastors of mine, I need to make a confession to you guys this morning. I am preaching from a stolen Bible today. This is not good for a preacher to do. But I was over here at the Nine Mile campus working a few months ago and I had left my Bible back at the Spanish Trail campus. So I snuck down to Dustin Scott's office and stole this Bible from his office. He must not read his Bible because he hasn't asked for it back yet. I'm kidding, I'm just kidding. It was an extra one on his shelf. I know he reads the Bible. Uh, he is a lifelong friend of mine and one of the most godly men that I know. Um, so now that that's out on the table, I guess I'm gonna have to give it back to him today, but he's gonna have to wait and let me preach from it for the next couple of hours. Uh, we're gonna take a look at the book of Habakkuk together today. Um, so if you can turn there with me this morning, that'd be awesome. Um, you should be pretty familiar with where these books are. They're in the Minor Prophets, uh, this whole collection of them. And so they're right back before the New Testament starts. So turn over there to the book of Habakkuk. While you're turning there, I wanted to show you something that I actually found in Dustin's Bible this week as I was preparing. I think there's gonna be a picture on the screen. You guys check this out. That is Dustin Scott as a teenager. You're welcome. You might know this if you've been around Hillcrest for a while, but Dustin has made a habit of um, pranking me from time to time from the stage by coming up with names like Stan Stavis and different things like that. Um, and so let the payback begin. Anyway, I didn't actually find that in his Bible. I had it in my back pocket all the time. Uh, well, now that we've got that out of the way, let's get to work this morning and looking at the book of Habakkuk. I hope you found it at this point. Have you guys ever watched a movie or a TV show with someone who has seen it already? Have you ever done that? Uh, just a quizzical yes from here. 
Uh, Rachel and I are huge Survivor fans. I don't know if any of you guys watch Survivor in here, but we have been huge Survivor fans all the way back from the very beginning. We've actually watched every single season, every single episode together, all the way back to the very first season since we were dating. And so it's this fun tradition that we do um, and keep up with together. It's a lot of fun. So a few years back, we were watching the finale episode together. And we were rarely uh, watch the episode live because it comes on Wednesday nights most of the time. And so we're usually at church where all you guys should be. I'm kidding, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Now we're, we're usually at church and so we usually watch it like the next day or over the weekend or something like that. And so we were watching it the following night and as the episode unfolded and the, and the winner was revealed, I noticed that Rachel didn't really have much of a reaction even though uh, the winner was a very, um, it was a surprise, it was a surprise winner, not who we thought would win. And so she eventually confesses that she accidentally saw the winner on Facebook earlier that day. And she didn't tell me, she didn't tell me. And so she just watched the episode. She didn't wanna ruin it for me, but here's the deal. She knew what was coming. She knew how the story was going to end. And so she reacted differently than I did. Me on the other hand, I was in shock. I couldn't believe that person when I was confused. I totally wanted somebody else to win and thought they would, they should have anyway. I'm still a little bitter about it. So I was freaking out. My goodness, can you believe that they won? What's going on? And she's over there just like, "Mm mm-hmm, interesting. Not surprised or shaken at all because she knew the plan. She knew what was coming. And this is kind of how it works with God. He's binge watched every episode of our life and the days to come on Netflix. He's just like up there in heaven, just watching it all. And in fact, he, he actually wrote it and directed it, the whole thing. He knows what's coming. Nothing takes him by surprise. He knows the plan because he is the author of the plan. And we're gonna see this unfold in a very specific way in the book of Habakkuk today. What we'll see here is essentially a conversation between Habakkuk and God. A conversation between the one who doesn't know the plan and the one who does know the plan. And we'll see that they respond from that place of understanding and perspective as we go through the book. So let's look at the prophet together, the the book of Habakkuk together, as you've turned there. Before we do that though, let's pray as we seek God this morning. God, we are grateful for your presence, grateful for this thing called church, grateful for your willingness to bring us all here to gather in your name. I pray that uh, this time has been honoring and pleasing to you and I pray it will continue to be as we divide your word. Use it to make us more and more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Habakkuk is small in stature at only three chapters long. It comes in at number eight on the lineup of the 12 minor prophets, but it is huge in biblical and theological significance. In fact, I think it might have been the Apostle Paul's favorite book. He quotes Habakkuk 1.5 and Acts 13.41. And he also quotes Habakkuk 2.4, two different times, once in Galatians 3 and another in Romans 1. Uh, Habakkuk 2.4 is also quoted again a third time in Hebrews 10.38. And we'll dig into the specific significance of this a little bit later, but clearly we can see that this prophet is minor in name only. What he has to say carries great significance, so much so that the New Testament authors saw fit to quote him directly four times and reference him and his work 
multiple times. So if New Testament authors like Paul see fit to lean in and pay close attention to what Habakkuk has to say, it might be good for us to do the same thing this morning. We don't know much about the prophet himself. Um, There's really nothing else in all of the Bible about him. Uh, What we do know is he's one of the few uh, writers in the scripture to refer to himself as a prophet. He does that in the very first verse. Um, But aside from that, what we learn about him in this text is that we know he's not a self-centered person, only concerned with the comfort and safety of himself or his family. Um, He was deeply distressed by the moral and spiritual conditions of the world around him. He loved his nation and knew it was moving ever closer to the edge of destruction by continuing to disobey God's law. And this led him to two anguished questions spilling out of his lips in the very beginning of his book. These two questions are how long and why? And he asked these questions directly to God, really at God. And so let's look at the first chapter of Habakkuk together and see what's going on here. Verses one through four. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And see, Habakkuk, what's happening here is he sees the sin of the people of his nation and the devastating consequences it's having. He's confused and frustrated with God for not doing something. And he just says, how long, Lord? How long do I have to cry out to you before you answer me? Why do you make me see these things and just stand idly by and watch it happen? Why aren't you doing something? And what Habakkuk is actually doing here is he's essentially addressing one of the most common challenges to Christianity around the world. We know it as the problem of evil. If God is good, why are all these bad things happening? Why isn't he intervening somehow? And I have to admit, church, this is a fair question to ask. If we're being honest with ourselves and each other this morning, at least at some point through our lives, we've probably asked ourselves this question. Maybe in our own head, maybe out loud to someone else or maybe even cried it out to God like Habakkuk. I actually don't think it's wrong to ask this question. In fact, I think it could be helpful if asked with the right motives. I think the error comes when we expect or even demand God to answer that question or any question for that matter on our terms and from our perspective. See, God doesn't operate on our terms and from our perspective. And unfortunately, Habakkuk is about to find that out the hard way. Let's look at how God answers Habakkuk's questions in verse five of chapter one. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. 
God responds to his question and says, oh, oh, don't you worry, Habakkuk. I am not unaware of what's going on with my people. And yeah, I've got a plan to do something about it, but it's probably not anything that you have in mind. He tells him to just sit back and watch. Be astounded. I'm about to do something that you wouldn't even believe if I told you. And he drops this bomb on him and says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans against Judah to punish them for their disobedience. Now the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians, were known for being a vicious people. In fact, God would go on to explain in verses seven through 11 here of just how vicious they are. We don't have time to get into it this morning, but they are an evil, evil, vicious people who do terrible, horrific things to the people that they conquer. And so can you imagine Habakkuk's face when he hears God's response to his question of how long and why? Well, based on his response back to God, beginning in verse 12, I think he was in some form of shock. Listen to this. Are you not everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors? and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. And he goes on in that, the rest of that chapter to use this analogy of a fisherman and fish to describe how this terrible king of Babylon is just scooping up all these people and just mercilessly killing them. And he asks God, are you going to let them devour up all these people and nations and mercilessly, mercilessly without punishment, just not, let, not do anything about it? See, I'm not sure what Habakkuk wanted God to do about his complaints in the first few verses of this book, but based on his response here, I'm fairly confident this is not what he had in mind. This is not what he had in mind for God to say. Habakkuk hears God's plan to punish the people of Judah using the wicked nation of Babylon. He's like, whoa, 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 wait just a minute. You can't use the Babylonian people to punish Judah. Those guys are 10 times more evil than we are. So how could God punish Judah by a nation that was worse than they were? Well, according to God's perspective, Judah's wickedness was just as bad, if not greater, because they were his people. Essentially, these Jews knew better, yet they disobeyed anyway. You see, it wasn't that Habakkuk was necessarily asking bad or wrong questions. It's that he was expecting God to answer his questions based on his own limited perspective and understanding. Ultimately, he either forgot to choose or he forgot or chose to ignore the fact that the God of the universe is sovereignly in control. His perspective is greater than Habakkuk's or ours, because he's God and we're not. Church, I'm not sure if it struck you yet, but we should resonate with this as well. Remember, we've probably all walked in these shoes at some point in our life, not asking bad or wrong things of God, but only hearing the answer we wanna hear, or worse, only obeying the commands that we want to obey the ones that feel comfortable or fit into this life. 
This is typically the issue with the question of the problem of evil. Most of the time, those who ask that question don't actually have a problem with evil. They have a different kind of problem. And the problem is typically twofold. One, they have a misunderstanding of what or who evil actually is. And two, they only want to hear an answer that fits their understanding or perspective of how this life should work. Now, this isn't the point of the sermon today, but it's, it's important. And so I want to unpack it for just a second. First, when we ask the question like Habakkuk did, God, what about all this evil in the world? I thought you were a loving and gracious God. Why aren't you doing something about all of this? A common way we often hear this question raised is, why do bad things happen to good people? You ever heard that question before? Maybe you've asked that question or wondered yourself. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, we have to understand there's a fundamental problem with that question. According to my Bible, those creatures don't exist on this planet. There's no such thing as good people. At least that's what Paul says before you get mad and thought you were one of them, okay? This isn't Dan. Paul says in Romans chapter three, verse 10 through 12, as it is written, he's quoting Psalms 14, one through three and 53, one through three. He's quoting the Old Testament. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Eight times. And in five different ways, in these three short verses, Paul goes out of his way to make sure we fully understand that we are all sinners. Broken, separated, unrighteous. We're all bad, evil, whatever term you wanna use, anything but good. Paul's saying pretty plainly here that there's no such thing as good people. There's bad people and Jesus. It's just that plain. Second, the error that Habakkuk made, and I think we make sometimes as well when we ask God this question, is that we fail to see it from his perspective. From our perspective, the evil is all out there somewhere, not in here, not in here in our own hearts. We want God to do something about all of that evil out there in the world, but don't mess around with this little evil world that I got going on inside of me. Don't do that. And see, when we get right down to it, we don't really want God to get rid of all of the evil in the world because that means we'd be included in that cleanup effort. Seeing things from God's perspective is critical to understanding his plan for our life. And that's what Habakkuk was missing here. So we're in good company. Habakkuk wasn't ready to hear this response from God either. So here he is frustrated with the people of Judah for disobeying and rebelling against God. He complains to God for not doing something about it. God tells him, hey, don't worry, I got a plan. I'm gonna do something about it. Well, Habakkuk didn't like God's plan. So he voices another complaint that ends chapter one with a question. Are you going to just let them keep on doing this? And then let's look at chapter two and see what happens next. So he asks this question, are you just gonna keep on letting them do this? And then he says in verse uh, one of chapter two, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. 
And so what we have here is after a relatively heated series of questions aimed at God and his character, Habakkuk wisely hits the pause button, retires himself to his watchtower to wait and see how the Lord would respond to his question. I think he had a moment of clarity and realized he needed to get alone in order to gain God's perspective. I have a great deal of respect and admiration for Habakkuk for being able to do this. He's somehow able to settle himself down in the midst of a crazy time and see that he was hearing God's answer, but wasn't taking time to understand God's perspective. What a great example this is for us in this life. We're not facing any invasion from the Babylonians, but we face trials in this life because we live in a fallen, broken world. We are fallen and broken people. And we are often so busy and so self-absorbed that we neglect the practice of getting alone with God. To not only hear from him, but really to understand things from his perspective, where he's coming from and why things are happening the way that they are around us. You know, I had an image come to my mind as I was studying this week um, and the weeks leading up to this. Uh, It's an image of Habakkuk in a movie theater. Now, I know they didn't have movie theaters back there, so just just stay with me for a second, okay? He's sitting there and he's watching this movie unfold in front of him and he thinks he started to figure the movie out. He understands how it's going to unfold. He thinks he knows how the movie's going to end. And so he starts to stand up and leave. Who wants to sit there and watch a movie you think you know how it's going to end? You know this moment, okay? Put yourself in the theater with Habakkuk. You're watching a movie that's just like a little bit scary and there's somebody inside the house all by themselves and there's a noise outside the house. What do they do? They call 911 like a normal human being? No, they go out there to check it out. Oh, why do they do that? Now we all know, we think we know exactly how this is gonna end, right? Of course we do. Something bad's gonna get them when they go out there. Just call the police. But raise your hand if you've ever gotten up and walked out of the theater at this very moment. I don't see any hands. Okay, just checking, just checking. No one has done that. First of all, you paid $100 to see that movie. That would be an irresponsible financial choice. But no one goes to the movie and gets up two thirds of the way through and says, I know where this is going. I know exactly what's gonna happen. I'm out of here. Why? Because there's always something that happens at the end that makes it all come together and make sense. So we wait for that big moment. And that's what Habakkuk did. He took a deep breath. He sat back down to see what was gonna happen, to see things from God's perspective. And so let's look at Habakkuk 2, two through four together and see God's plan unfold. Verse two, and the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Okay, pause for a second. We're gonna keep reading, but just for a second. That's what faith is, okay? Let me reread that for a second. When this is quoted later on in the New Testament, the it here, it will surely come, um, that that's, that's talks about Jesus, okay? 
It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. Faith, it will surely come. It will not delay. That is faith, to know that something will come. Continuing on into this key verse. Behold, his soul, the, uh, the Babylonian king, the, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. There it is, that last part of verse four is the linchpin of the whole book. But the righteous, the just, shall live by faith. So because of the soul of the king of Babylon was puffed up and self-righteous, full of pride, he would die. But the godly remnant of Israel would live by faith. Like we mentioned in the beginning of our time together earlier, this portion of chapter two, verse four, probably sounds familiar. Not because you read Habakkuk, because we've already discussed the fact that most of us don't read the Minor Prophets. But it should sound familiar because we've seen it in the New Testament. It's used to describe um, the nature of the saving faith in Jesus Christ. Um, In Romans 1, Paul writes this, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As, As it is written in Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. And then he uses the phrase again in Galatians 3, verse 10, uh, going on into verse 11. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Now we, as New Testament believers, we have the benefit of having the New Testament at our fingertips, knowing the full plan of God for salvation for sinners. But Habakkuk couldn't see ahead to how God would preserve both his holy hatred for sin and his merciful forgiveness of sinners who just trust him. But God revealed it, and so he proclaimed it in chapter two, verse four. The just shall gain their lives in the judgment by faith. He knew that when he called them just, they weren't sinless. He meant that those who are right with God in spite of their sin are those who trust God for his mercy. But how can a holy God who hates sin show eternal mercy to sinners who simply just trust him for mercy? Well, God did not fully reveal that much to Habakkuk then, but he did to the apostle Paul. And the short answer is in the death of Christ. How can a holy God who hates sin show eternal mercy to sinners who simply trust him for mercy? Paul said it like this. They are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or an atonement by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies him who has faith in Jesus. It's in Romans chapter three, 24 through 26. Here's what that means for you and me. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ, as your savior and Lord, when you give up trying to lead your own life and establish your own worth and instead surrender your heart 
and life to him and you bank on him for your future, there's three things that will happen. Three critical things when that happens. Number one, your sin receives its deserved condemnation. Condemnation. Your sin receives its deserved condemnation. Two, God's righteousness receives its deserved glorification. And lastly, you receive your undeserved justification. And so let's unpack that for one second. You, your sin receives its deserved condemnation. We've already acknowledged the reality that we are all sinners, right? God is holy, we are sinners, there's a separation there. And so to put it simply, sin must be punished. But God, who is rich in mercy, sent his son to take our sin on himself and suffer for it. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. We see this all throughout the New Testament. If your faith is in Christ, the death he died becomes your death. Your sins become his and you bear them no more. They have received their deserved condemnation, not on your shoulders, but on Christ's. Secondly, God's righteousness receives its deserved glory. So it took the death of Christ for God's righteousness to receive its deserved glory. I think this is a distinguishing point here that if, if his righteousness had not been at stake, God, he might've just swept your sin under the rug but he glorified his righteousness by requiring an infinitely valuable sacrifice, the death of his only son. Because it's unthinkable in a moral universe that God would simply let bygones be bygones, just brush things under the rugs. The sins you committed 10 years ago, the, ten, the sins that I committed 10 years ago are as vivid and horrible and horrific and as condemning as if you, could, if you would have done them last night. So the righteous God cannot forget and ignore sin unless there is an atonement, a sacrificial substitute. And then he graciously removes the stain of sin from you and from me. Therefore, he sent the son so that our sin might receive its deserved condemnation and his righteousness might receive its deserved glorification. And third, lastly, when you trust in Christ, you receive your undeserved justification. Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. And to the one who does not work, that's us, but trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness, Romans 4.5. The righteous shall live by faith, God told Habakkuk. But some here today might say, well, how? What does faith in God really look like, practically speaking? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because he, we find that answer at the end of the book of Habakkuk in chapter three. So first let's look at verse 16, chapter three, verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble 
to come upon people who invade us. So this comes at the end of a list of woes uh, from God to the Babylonians and, and a list of things that he's gonna do to them because of their evil. And notice the drastic change in Habakkuk's response to God's plan. You remember early on, Habakkuk comes to God immediately complaining with questions and God gives him an answer and what does he do? Complain and ask some more questions. And God tells him a plan again and he just sits quietly. Now, this time, he hears this plan from God for the Babylonians and what does he do immediately? Verse 16, right at the beginning, I hear. I hear. He's listening closely to the voice of God now. And then you you see his response next to what he has heard. He literally has a deep physical response. So much so that he says he feels it in his bones. He feels it in his bones. He quivers from head to toe. Do you know what that sounds like to me? Belief. Faith. You don't have a physical bodily response to something you've heard unless you believe it to your core. God's, God, Paul, I'm sorry, Habakkuk heard God's voice and he believed it to his core. It shook him. He's heard God's plan for the Babylonians and he has had faith in God to do exactly what he says he's going to do. No more questions, no more complaints. And so after he stops trembling, he goes and waits quietly for it to come to fruition. But his faith doesn't stop there. Look at how he ends his prophecy in verses 17 and 18. Again, remember, the Babylonians are coming. They, they are going to invade the nation of Judah and they are, it is not gonna be good. And so Habakkuk says this, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's what faith looks like. That is what faith looks like in the midst of your darkest hour. He sounds like a totally different man. He sounds like a man who couldn't have more faith in God if he tried. He's essentially saying, God, whatever trials we might have to face or endure when the Babylonians come to invade us, fruit trees may not bloom, crops are gonna fail, cattle's gonna die or be taken away, whatever it is, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will have joy in the God of salvation. That church is what faith looks like. Jay Baxter says it this way. The literal is, uh, literally what it's saying in the original language here is, I will jump for joy in the Lord. I will spin around for delight in God. And Baxter goes on to say, here is the hilarity of faith. Joy at its best with circumstances at their worst. What a victory. May it be ours. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you jumped for joy in the Lord? Genuinely, really. If you have done that at all, I'm guessing it wasn't in the midst of your darkest times. Habakkuk's great example of faith Faith was likely in his darkest hour. 
His nation was about to be invaded. Many of his friends and family were likely to be killed. His whole world was crumbling and he says, I will have joy in God. So his faith then was in the promised savior to come. And you and I, we can have that same faith in our darkest hour in the savior that has already come. The one and only Christ. So we see and trust and believe in the saving grace of our great God, even when it seems impossible. For in time, God would bring to fruition a plan that was even more shocking than the plan he revealed to Habakkuk concerning the Babylonians. The more shocking plan was that God in the fullness of time would send his only begotten son to live a life that we could never live, a perfect life. He would die a brutal death on a cross that we could never bear. And he would rise again on the third day to save a lost and rebellious world, all according to the scriptures. Church, God is not done yet. So live by faith, not by sight. If you're not willing to walk out on a two-hour movie before you see how it all comes together, why are we so willing to walk out on the story that God is writing across the history of the world? Grab your popcorn, sit back down, and have faith that God is in control of this life. He has got a plan that is bigger and better than anything you could ever think or imagine. And by his sovereign grace, you and I are included in that plan. So I wanna close our time together by urging you to place your faith in God this morning. For some here today, that might be for the very first time. Today could be the day that you become what Paul calls a new creation by placing your faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. For some, it could be a time for a renewing of your faith, a time to be reminded of who God is, what he's done for you in his son Jesus, and that he has a plan for your life, a time to put your faith into action and get on board with God's plan. Maybe it's time to take the next step toward God today. Wherever you might be in your relationship with God, I pray that you place your faith solidly on the rock of salvation, Jesus Christ. As Paul puts it, they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, an atonement by his blood to be received by faith. This is God's word. And all God's people said, amen.